Alright, and uh, welcome to another episode of A Love Supremely Raymond. This is a Everybody Loves Raymond recap podcast. I am your host, Matt. I'm joined by my co-host, Kevin. Hey, hey. There he is. And uh, we are here today to talk about episode 8 of the first season of Everybody Loves Raymond, uh, In-Laws. I had the in-laws. I struck the, noticing it is not part of the official title. Yeah, no, um, no articles. No, the uh, which is, I'm going to find some way to make that a metaphor for how uh, shitty this episode was. <laughs> this, yeah, were, the, this was a bit of a clunker. It it had a lot of pro, uh, promise. Yeah, I, came, I went into this one hot. I was ready for this to be a like a marquee episode, but yeah, uh, it it fell flat. Yeah, it was a little rough. And this is the first episode, I believe, since the pilot to be written by Phil Rosenthal. You caught that, so, too. Yeah, I was interested yeah. in... Um, it doesn't seem like Phil... You know that word that we use over and over? Competent? Um, oh, I was going to say terrible. <laughs> the the other the other word we use all <laughs> the time. The other one? The, um, structurally, this episode was a mess. I um, I was watching it you know, with someone else, and they were... Like, it just, that's where it ended? What happened? Where did it go? <laughs> like, what's the next scene? And it was like, no, that's it. It's over. Yeah, yeah, format-wise, like, the conflict it introduces is not convincing, and then there's no resolution of the conflict. It just kind of, it just kind of dissipates at the end. Nothing. No, and in the, you know, our our guest last week, so, you know, just a, a belated thanks to John for being on uh, in our last episode. Oh, he, he was Ben, uh, Jamin, Franklin? <laughs> Yeah, Ben, John, and Franklin. Um, no, I was thinking that he he was commenting on one of Frank and Marie's uh, disputes as, like, potentially marriage ending. And I was, like, I kept thinking of that during watching this episode, that, like, you know, if that was enough for a reasonable person to think, you know, a divorce might ensue, then, like, this this one, there's no way the marriage should survive this. Yeah, I, I suppose that's true. I mean, this... Like, ostensibly, Ray and Deborah have been married for at least years. six years. I think it was eight, eight years, right? Yeah, 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 they did. So, if this is still a recurring problem where they haven't worked out how they're going to handle these essential family functions, and it ends up so disastrously, it yeah. speaks to a real problem that maybe means they shouldn't be married. It, it is, like, pretty, uh, it's a core, core element of a marriage, but are we, um... We might be jumping the gun a bit here. We've already we're discussing the uh, resolution. That's true. Or lack we're, putting, we're, we're putting the uh, racist remark before the Frank. <laughs> we have a we have some <laughs> other business to attend to first. Uh, some of this I've uh, kept from you, so it might be news to you as well. Deception. Um, you're you're like the Ray, and I'm the Deborah. As I look at you sternly with my arms folded in my nightgown. Yeah, yeah, I'm coming to what? you with a, um, you know, with a shameful secret that I have to confess about what I've been doing. <laughs> Let's hear it. All right. Well, a couple items. The first is that you know we're we're entering. This is our sixth episode. No, fifth episode of the podcast. And yeah. um, by this point, we've racked up uh, a number of. Errors and inconsistencies and uh, mistakes. So I think it's time we do um, a segment dedicated to correcting some of them. I think that's fair. We're about now, honesty, transparency. Yeah, I didn't ask you to do any of this work, but any... Uh, well, I'm any, trying to cover for myself. <laughs> anything that <laughs> you've uh, since had uh, you know, learned 
that we were wrong about or that we did not quite handle properly? Um, Aside from like how the Nation of Islam names work. <laughs> um, well, we talked about already that Ray is filmed in front of a live studio audience, but they obviously uh, pipe in some laugh track. Um, otherwise, nothing really springs to mind. I know you you probably have a whole bevy of these, so I'm going to turn it over to you. It's a fairly long list, so to make this into a recurring bit, I'm going to hold back on a few of them for today. But, okay, uh, okay. Some of the key ones I wanted to address, I'll kind of go from uh, most uh, most recent to earliest. Um, so Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, let's start there. Lou <laughs> Alcindor. Uh, right. He's from New York, but he's not from Queens. He was born and raised in Manhattan, uh, Upper Manhattan, Dykeman Street Projects in Inwood. Hmm. Oh, I still have to talk to you about that thing off mic that I also mentioned on episode the other time. That's another segment we're initiating, which is that thing off mic I have to talk that to thing. you about. <laughs> that thing of ours. That This thing of ours. Um, thing of so, ours. yeah, Jabbar, not from Queens, but from New York. Um, that correction number one, handled. Um, after that, we were debating, I don't know if you remember, Frank's... Um, exhortation to Raymond that he read Frank's humor louder and funnier. You remember this? Yeah. Yes. All right. So I looked into this one a little bit. It is, it is indeed a reference, but it is uh, really deep. It's a very obscure reference. Okay. Oh, I thought you were going to chime in with something. I thought okay was sufficient. It's going to have to be. So louder and funnier <laughs> is the name of a book of essays by celebrated humorist uh, P.G. Woodhouse. P.G. Woodhouse with yes. um, with the butler Jeeves. Exactly. Creator of Jeeves, the famous butler. Um, these are essays pulled from his articles, like very, very short, witty, observational articles that he published in Vanity Fair in the 20s and the 30s. Um. It was. Uh, it's not like a recent anthology. The name is an original P.G. Woodhouse uh, invention. So louder and funnier seems to refer to the type of humor that Frank is, um, you know, trading in in what he submits to Reader's Digest. Um, really, really deep ass obscure reference. Dude, what are we? What are we getting into with this? I don't know. Podcast. I feel like the Nazis at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Nazis. My face is, is melting off my we're, skull. This is episode 8 of like 200, and we're already comparing ourselves to Nazis. I hate these guys. Uh, yeah, uh, thinking back on the last five seconds, it might not have been <laughs> smart to compare myself to a Nazi. But I think the reference holds true. Um, okay, so that's correction number two. It is not just... Uh, John thought it was a reference to um, George Lucas. Really looking silly now. Um, whereas I thought back. it was just uh, an original, uh, an original Frank. Both wrong. I'll leave it. I'll leave it there for corrections. I got a couple more, but we can we can spread these out over the next few episodes. And um, a few notes going into episode eight. Um, I wanted you to be aware. Well, let me ask. Did you notice uh, any of the characters looked different in general? Hmm. No. Not okay, nothing, so, nothing big. Well, the show had a major personnel change in the makeup department. This was uh, the first episode with the 
who becomes this show's real makeup artist. Melanie Hughes, who had done the makeup on uh, the previous seven episodes, is gone for good. That's it for Melanie. Melanie couldn't uh, hack it. But I wanted to ask you, why do you think that they cut her loose? What was wrong with the makeup up to this point? Uh, the only thing I can really think of is um, they, were, they were portraying Deborah as kind of a put-upon housewife raising three kids. And Patricia Heaton is a is a, is a handsome woman. But she does, there's We're the, going down this road again. <laughs> I, I know. I'm, I'm doing it a lot worse than John did, too. So maybe they think they can, you know, up her sex appeal a little bit with somebody who's a little more deft. Or they might want to exaggerate Marie's sort of, um, what's the word? Not trashiness, garishness, maybe? Gaudiness? Garish is a good word for yeah. it. So anyway, a couple of things. Uh, we'll bring them up at the end. I think we're leaning, uh, we're looking for our, our next guest uh, in the next episode. I think it's safe to say uh, the, the brains behind Steely Ray will be here. Uh, with us in our next episode, um, not not necessarily just as a third mic for the recap, but to do a, a very special um, sort of expose. Yeah, he he brings a secret knowledge to things. It's like when the Nazis in the Indiana Jones join up with <laughs> the, the rival French archaeologists. Uh, I was going to be more uh, literal in that. Steely Ray is going to be here to talk about <laughs> Phil Rosenthal specifically. We've we're having making... a we're having a neo Nazi. What are you doing to me? I have to <laughs> do this work on the editing oh, tomorrow. Okay, okay, I'm sorry. Steely Ray is going to be here to talk about Phil Rosenthal, uh, the executive producer and creator of Everybody Loves Raymond, who we've 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 made some glancing blows on on Phil as we've gone. We've we've theorized about what he looks like. Uh, his vibe. We've since come to know quite a bit more about him, and Steely Ray is going to take us through um, sort of an, an overarching unified theory of Phil. Yeah, he's he's very well versed in his Phil lore. I mean, we we fired a few shots across the bow, but nothing substantive. So we're going to kind of uh, beef this up a little bit. Right, right. So so Steely Ray will be here with us. Uh, in our next episode today, we're going to keep it short, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and uh, stick to stick to episode eight. Um, let's so let's let's get into the recap. This yeah. is like we said, called the in laws or just in laws. Um, and the episode opens with um, Deborah once again uh, dressed like a Cabbage Patch doll. This time, <laughs> in a sort of like, I mean, it looks like the kind of like stiff fake fabric that an actual like child's toy would be dressed in like it didn't look like real clothes to me maybe it's maybe it's a tribute to melanie hughes for her departure oh that uh one last one last uh run in melanie's chosen like uh ensemble yes she's a she's a purveyor of like frump Deborah and, and Patricia Heaton really knew how to honor her the way she would appreciate best. <laughs> yeah, Patricia is a is a loyal person. So the cold open is um is about this. So you know we were talking about things pulled directly from Ray Romano's stand up. This had to be right. Yes, I I had that exact in my notes. So it's Allie totally is sitting at the kitchen table. Oh yeah, yeah. Sorry to cut you off there. The um, the Allie is sitting at the kitchen table. Um, with a sort of like dreamy, lost in her own world look, Allie's Ray Endeavor's daughter, um, and Ray is sort of um, 
you know, he's taken with how pure and happy Allie looks, and he remarks that, uh, you know, a, something that's unique to children, right? Am I not? Yeah, he seems right? he seems a bit moved, but also like a little bit. I, I detected like a bit of jealousy. Yeah, yeah, he's he's definitely envious of like that state that a child can reach, and he, he says as much, right? That it's, like. Once you get old, you, you just can't be that happy. And so he asks Allie, like, what are you thinking of that's making this happy? And she says, candy. And this, like, Funny, you know, listens, cute moments. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Audience slaps. They love and, it. And Ray's, Ray's own youth had been sucked out a long time ago. But right. Frank, Frank doesn't, didn't let him get past eight or nine years old with, with his youth intact. <laughs> no way. There's no way. Um, so then, like, the Romano stand-up bit like, really gets kicking, because, you know, Deborah plays the uh, straight man to the bit, and she's like, what do you mean? I'm happy. Adults can be happy. And Ray's like, not like that. Not like kids can be happy. She's thinking about candy. If an adult thinks about candy, his mind goes right to cavities. I don't have any money. Am I gay? <laughs> and I want I want the listeners to know those are all, those are three quotes. That's verbatim. Yeah, it's like, Right away, because we've, we've talked about it before, like, this show cannot go one episode without making some really tactless remark about homosexuality. And they They're get it out always egregious. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's never, like, built into the narrative and, like, clever. It's always, like, tacked on, on you know, like, right on the surface level. Let's just say the word gay because it's funny. Yeah, exactly. It's, I don't know. It's, this is going to be a rough one. Um, that's where the cold open ends. <laughs> and, uh, in a lot of ways, this, uh, the sheer lack of any sort of anything resembling resolution, uh, presages a lot about this episode. Um, so we get into the title sequence. Oh, wait, no, should I mention that Ray, uh, puts the candy in his own mouth and, uh, has to eat his words because he is immediately just as happy as she was? Do you interpret that as genuine or is Ray putting on like a little performance? Oh, to, I thought it was that Ray is basically five years old. Well, so we've talked about this before, too, that Ray is in this advanced stage of arrested development. But I always thought it was more like he's 12 or 13 rather than like five or six. No, that's true. But I think this was a more like intentional evocation of Ray's childishness. Like, I do, I do think this was a mindful joke. Like, let's, uh, you know, Ray thinks he's so wise and world weary blah 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 blah, and then he puts candy in his mouth and he's a baby you think so you think like phil is winking at us with that terrible face of his i do and like you said uh phil rosenthal wrote this one and we're not are we sure that this is the first one he's written so far yeah i looked it up because I, I know he wrote the pilot and uh oh okay so he wrote the pilot yeah and i think this is the first one since the pilot that he's credited as the writer on all right, so um, here's where we break, and we enter the title sequence, and you know where I'm going with this. Yeah, so is there no sound, or is there like a little piano, or are birds chirping? Are you even listening? Yeah, it's tweeting, it's birds. Birds it's chirping birds. in the background. Like I don't know if that birds. was the default sound that they put things over. Well, no, I do know from episode six when they had no sound at all, like there were no birds, there was nothing. It just ran right through. They're they're choosing a sound every time, and it seems to have nothing to do with any other aspect of the episode. I'll remind you, the last one was a vrooming motorcycle. 
it's it's like they have like a Casio keyboard from like 1993 <laughs> that can do little sound effects. Yeah, set that thing to tone 99. Just press yeah. all the keys one by one. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, I think if that comes next, there's either going to be, like, somebody, like, um, doing a belly laugh or, like, some maracas. Or that the one that's, like, a grunt, like, ooh, ooh. Yeah, that's always, always one on that those. grunt. Yeah. Yeah, so I was a little disappointed that, you know, after, like, the really clownish motorcycle sound, we just got some, like, you know, like you said, you could you can miss it. Just tweeting birds. Yeah, because um, I, I had to rewind because I was like, I know there's supposed to be a sound, and, yeah. I didn't so want to we, disappoint uh, you. I, I appreciate the effort, mm. but uh, so we cut to Frank. We're at Frank and Marie's. We're in Frank and Marie's house when the episode opens, and you were saying, you know, it's a little unique to see just the two of them in a scene together. Because um, usually, I mean, I think so far when it's happened, uh, Robert's been there, or you know, at least one third character to to balance it or give it a little vinegar. Yeah, yeah. Because usually the episodes are either you're either supposed to be sympathizing with Ray or Deborah's plight, and Marie and Frank are kind of ancillary to that. Like, now they're establishing that it's Frank and Marie who are the ones who are sort of the center, so to speak, of the episode. Yeah, um, and this was, I think that's like, it, it's not a wise move, because you start writing some checks that you, the show can't cash. <laughs> it was a very weird... Um, you know, it was, a, it was a bold play, and I think it fails ultimately for them. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess some marks given for trying something different, but yeah, they just they just couldn't sustain it. It's yeah. So Frank and Marie are discussing um, fish sticks. That's my note. Do you have more context than that? Not really. Uh, Fra- Frank's ripping coupons and annoys Marie. I will say their banter seems a bit more playful than it has been in past episodes. So maybe their yeah. marriage is actually based upon something other than um, Catholic guilt. Yeah, and repulsion. Actually... Yeah, exactly. But yeah, it's 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 rather um, unremarkable. So yeah, they're... Frank is, is tearing coupons, um, I, it seems to me, just in half, not like out or uh, for future use. He's just ripping sheets of paper in half. Yeah, I thought um, he was ripping up like recipes he didn't like that Marie does at first or something like that. It'd be very on brand for Frank. Yeah. Um, so he's saving coupons. He saves one for fish sticks. You know, Marie doesn't understand why because Frank does not like fish sticks. She's tried them with him. Um, it's a lot of bullshit. And then uh, the subject comes up. Ray comes over, basically, to ask if his parents are going to behave themselves Um when Deborah's parents come over on Saturday. Yeah, this is big. And um, uh, a quick note about what uh, Ray is wearing, that bright red pullover with the zipper. Oh, I don't have this note. Yeah, give me this. Initially, I thought the zipper was uh, supposed to be a cross. Uh, but it's not. It's it's just the zipper. But Ray does dress like... What do you want me to do with like, that? I don't know, but Ray does... <laughs> Ray does dress like he's on a children's show a lot of time. There's a lot of primary colors, and he wears, like, a lot of sweaters and shirts that are kind of, like, they give him the illusion of, like, being, like, fluffy and big. And he always yeah. looks, and it's, it serves to make him seem more childish, I guess. I guess he like goes, like, he, he kind of, like, pinballs back and forth between the, like, 
the open flannel with the t-shirt and jeans and some like hiking boots and yeah, yeah then this very like um like an old navy pullover fleece um and in always like yeah this like sort of like obnoxious like bright red or bright green that's like you know yeah it doesn't and seem like what deborah would buy for him yeah no i mean is is that melanie hughes are we gonna see a change here Hey, she's the makeup artist. She's not oh, dressing she's, them. That's somebody else. That's wardrobe. You think you think it's you think Ray was like really firm on production about that? that well, my wants... theory actually, I, I didn't bring it up, but I thought that uh, the one who needed new makeup was actually Ray. I think Ray's face changed a little bit. You think you think he looks better or worse? Uh, personally, I think he looks worse, but I think he thinks he looks better. <laughs> okay, so you he think looks, he he looks he, smooth. You think he got rid of Melanie Hughes? Yeah, think- I think he went with someone who's going to use a, a little more makeup. A little more, like, like makeup in, like, the true sense. Like, you know, covering up his pore. Like, making him look more um, polished and glamorous. Like, I think it's, like, a, a little bit of a vanity trip here. It's interesting, because I, I feel like so much of the show depends on, like, a lack of vanity. Like, Ray, Ray is one of Phil's patented oafs. You would think he wants to look as stupid and bad as possible. I don't think he's that committed to the character. I think it's, uh, you know, Ray Romano uh, should look stupid and bad. He should have, like, some bags under his eyes. You know, he should have, like, an untreated pimple on the side of his face. Like, But <laughs> Ray Barone... No, the other way around. Ray Barone should look like that, but Ray Romano should... Um, I think Ray Romano wants uh, to look his best. All right, I'll I'll accept that. So, uh, right, so Deborah's parents are coming over this weekend, and um, Ray is nervous because apparently uh, her parents and the Barones don't have a good history. Um, the quote I have is, uh, "You hate their guts," so it's it goes a little beyond that, I guess. And uh, why don't you summarize for the listener uh, the reasons why? So the. Barones, Ray's parents are are expressing disdain. What we're what we're able to glean as the audience is that Deborah's parents are a little pretentious. They're making fun of them for the vacations that they go on. Yeah. And um, Marie's Marie calls um, Deborah's father an ass, which gets a big laugh because you know the word right. ass. I guess she on said the word, the word TV ass in 1997. But yeah, the idea is you know Ray's parents are these. Uh, blue-collar stiffs from, you know, the outer boroughs in New York City, and we're led to believe that Deborah's parents are more of these kind of waspy, cosmopolitan, uh, perhaps somewhat condescending type people. Well, they're from Connecticut. Yes, they do explicitly mention that they're from Connecticut, which has all sorts of connotations. Yeah, that's a big dog whistle there. That's like, you know, we, we there's a whole lot of work we could be doing with characterization and... Uh, you know, letting the characters speak for themselves, but instead we'll just say Connecticut. And uh, I, I can't fault them for that. It's an easy one. Oh, it is. It's, and that kind of goes back to, we talk about Ray Romano's sort of Queens, Long Island, bona fides. You know, being from the tri-state area, like Connecticut, you, you know what it is right away. Connotation, no explanation needed. Is it the worst state? It's definitely the worst state in the Northeast. I'd have to probably like South Carolina or Mississippi are probably worse than Connecticut on the whole. You think so? 
Yeah, I, I, yeah, I'd have to think so. I don't know. I've always been inclined to put Connecticut at the top of my worst state list. I mean, does that have to do with our proximity to Connecticut? Probably. We're, we're more sensitive to its failing. Because I agree, there's there's no like really good cities in Connecticut, and it's like this weird mishmash of. Um, yes, yeah, so that I mean that's the thing. Like, it's not even just like the the. You, first of all, you have the stereotypes of the like you know. Um, the, the the rich kind of pretentious, um, you know, like, city, like, think of themselves as somehow attached to New York City, but, like, need to keep a safe distance from it for all of its unseemly parts. Like, it's got that whole thing. But then yeah. you have, on top of that, you're like, okay, well, what what does Connecticut offer in a positive way? Like, what, is it, what does it give you without any connection to any other state? And you're like, well, okay, well, it's big cities are Hartford and Stamford, right? Yeah. Yeah, uh, isn't Bridgeport always ranked like the worst city in the country? Yeah, Bridgeport's always up there, and like same thing with New Haven. I mean, New Haven has Yale, but New Haven's like a terrible place to live. Still, I mean, I gotta credit it with Yale. There's no Yale in Mississippi. Yeah, that's true. While we're on the subject, I should say that you know, thank you to all our listeners from Connecticut who um, you know have been loyally keeping with it. Thank you for listening. We appreciate your listenership and. the uh, well, there's no good. I thought I had a segue. I don't have a segue. We we yeah, need to yeah. finish up this scene at Frank and Marie's. Ray Ray eventually convinces Frank and Marie that you know they need to play nice. They need to come over when the in laws are there. They can't hide. Yeah. And uh, Frank uh, puts the stinger on the scene by noting among his many coupons, there's one for Dijon mustard, um, and he refers to it as a a poupon coupon. Yeah, big laugh. I. I honestly didn't get it. I mean, I I get what it's going for, but I didn't know that Dijon mustard had a connotation with defecation. But it's just who, who am I to question Frank Barone? Is that what it was? I thought it was like oh, Dijon is a French word. Um, and oh, okay. So it's fancy like them. Isn't that like we see? We're we're talking from twenty twenty mustard perspective. Late nineties was it normal that for like you know your average suburban middle middle class family to have uh the dijons the poupons the uh the fancy mustards i that's a pretty good point they probably would have just had like french's regular yellow mustard or talman's or whatever especially i mean yeah especially frank and marie you know blue collar heroes i mean for us it was goldens goldens only goldens was big i think that was what was in my house actually spicy brown yeah but the mm-hmm. um yeah so I think I thought it was like a you can like those you know so- snobs from Connecticut can take their Dijon mustard and go um, the Poupon coupon line is honestly it it just sucks it's a shitty joke yeah it was it was it was bad and especially since it's caused us to talk about it for like for like a minute now in, in confusion it a good joke shouldn't have to be uh, litigated like this so shame no. on them. But it does pay uh, off. The French thing does pay off later. Frank's disdain for uh, French people. A little little generous would pay off, but uh, yeah, yeah. The French, the French don't get away easy in this one. Um, So then we cut to Ray and Debra's, and uh, they're cleaning up. You know, hurriedly cleaning up because the in-laws are about to arrive. Um, Debra does not like the pants Ray is wearing. Like she makes the sort of. 
um, comment like, oh, like those are the pants you're wearing. But what what kind of pants was he wearing? I didn't notice anything odd about them at all. Yeah, they were just they were just black jeans. They actually matched his shirt kind of nicely. He was wearing like yeah. a gray plaid shirt, but it, it didn't look like it wasn't like too flannel, so it was like he was going to go. No, it was tucked wood. in. He looked uncharacteristically appropriate for. I thought he looked fine, better yeah. than usual. And you know, Deborah's like those pants, and he just starts taking them off in the living room. And then the door, you know, there's a knock at the door, and so like anyone would do, Deborah opens it without waiting for Ray to put his pants back on. <laughs> yeah, especially after she saw him undoing his belt and started scolding right. him. Uh, and you know, so Ray has to account for why his pants are half undone, and he says it's because he was dusting. Big laugh. Um, yeah. What about these two who enter? Ray, uh, Deborah's Deborah's parents. Big applause. I've recognized the guy actually, uh, Robert Culp. Yeah, they're he, they're guest stars, like true true guest stars. Yeah, yeah. He was he was like I guess a big character actor in the sixties and seventies. I knew him because I I liked the show Columbo, and he was the villain on Columbo. He was on it for a long time, right? Well, so Columbo works like. Columbo investigates a murder each episode, and it always, it changes every time who the subject uh, is. I've never and, seen Columbo, to be perfectly honest. Oh, it's it's good. You should you should check it out. It's it's actually interesting from like a class standpoint because Columbo like drives around this crappy car and he wears this like rumpled up trench coat and the same tie and his hair is all uncombed and he has a really working class accent and um, he's a homicide detective in L.A. and he exclusively basically investigates these crimes that are connected to like actors and businessmen and lawyers and members of sort of the upper crust. Hmm. And he presents he comes him- in in his, uh, okay. Yeah. He, he presents himself as being like kind of stupider and more naive than he is, but he's actually very perceptive. Oh, listen, there's one other thing I wanted to ask you about. And so the, the murderer always slips up and Columbo, uh, gets his man and Robert, so Robert Cull- he was yeah. that guy like probably three or four times. Oh, okay. You know what? You get, like, on IMDb, you get, like, a really broad range of years that he was featured on Columbo, so it makes it seem like he was in, yeah, like, a yeah. decade of Columbo. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's it's similar characters, kind of, to what he's playing on Raymond's. You know, they have, like, yeah, those yeah. transatlantic accents, and they're very effortlessly condescending. So, so I, got a, I got something to loop uh, around to, to another thing I want to talk about later, but the I guess his big credit the thing he was on the most is uh the show i spy in the in the 60s <laughs> yeah i looked that up too yeah so i i spy where his like is it his like a sidekick was bill cosby yeah i guess so because i remember i guess i spy was remade in like probably like 2002 or three and it was With owen it was wilson Ed- and eddie murphy yeah so i guess uh eddie murphy was the bill cosby and owen wilson was uh robert culp but from the the images, it looks like it was like Cosby's like first role. He was like super young. Yeah, because yeah, I guess it would have been like like mid sixties, right? Yeah. So so I Spy was Robert Culp's like big one. He was also on like he was on. I, I looked him up. He has like an incredible resume. He was on like a hundred different shows or something. Like he has a record breaking stuff. Really? Oh, yeah. I, I know he was very uh, prolific. Yeah, so Robert Culp is apparently, you know, he plays Warren, Deborah's father, and Lois is played by Catherine Helmond. So did you look into her? Because I recognized her actually more more immediately than I recognized him. Really? So I, I thought her face looked familiar. And I looked her up, and it seemed like she was on, like, a lot of soap operas. Uh, there, yeah. A couple there, big there was, movies, though. There was one surprising credit 
Which so I'm she's sure a you know she's it. a key key player in Brazil. Yeah, so I have not seen that movie. No way. You've never seen Brazil? I know, and I, I like Terry Gilliam, and I, I know it's Robert De Niro. I don't think you get the right to say I like Terry Gilliam without saying without seeing Brazil. Oh, but I like I like Time Bandits with the with the midgets. She's in that too. No. Yeah, she's in that. Oh man, I'm. She was like a uh, you know she was in a couple Terry Gilliam things. She's also she was a, a recurring character for several years on Who's the Boss? Oh, with Tony yeah. Danza. Well, I saw that, and I also she was on Coach, which Phil Rosenthal that was his precursor. Oh shit! So that's how he that's how he nabbed her. Okay, and then I guess the the big the one that came up first, and the one that I realized I recognized her from was the movie Overboard, which my uh, grandparents used to watch all the time. Yeah, see, I don't know that one either. So yeah, so Catherine Hellman and Robert Culp get these big uh, ovations. Um, oh, I did want to mention that I noticed uh, she also was on one episode of the Wild Thornberries, where she voiced a dugong. Oh, the Pokemon. Right, it was the Pokemon Wild Thornberries <laughs> crossover. Uh, yeah. Big Nickelodeon event in 1998. Though, do you know what a dugong is in real in the real world? It's it's like a manatee sort of creature, right? I or assume like... it looks exactly like the Pokemon dugong. I've never bothered to investigate that <laughs> assumption. That's what I'm going off to. Uh, I looked one up. Oh no, it looks exactly like a manatee. I would never be able to tell them apart. Yeah, the uh, sailors couldn't either. That's where, like, the mermaid myth comes from. They all wanted to bang manatees. Yeah, they'd hear these, like, moaning uh, sea cows out in the deeps. And yeah. they'd uh, all fantasize about mounting them. Yeah, very filthy. So she played one of those on the Wild Thornberries. She played, she played a manatee. Yeah, when she, you know, Nigel Thornberry was attracted to the call of the dugong off the coast of <laughs> one of wanted, his encampments. He wanted a big, fat sea cow. It was that, you know, like it was the coming of age episode where Donnie witnessed Nigel and the dugong, you know, on a on a rock <laughs> just <laughs> yeah, offshore. Nigel had to swear Donnie to secrecy. It was the, the primal scene. It was what uh, brought out language in Donnie. And he was never the same. <laughs> it was like uh, it was like Hodor. <laughs> he, could, he could never express himself properly again. The Wait, trauma wasn't, at um, Nigel. Wasn't Donnie voiced by Flea from the Chili Peppers? Yeah, he was, and uh, uh, Nigel was Tim Curry, right? Yeah, do you think that uh, Flea and Catherine Hellman ever met? I, You know, I really can't say. Because the Terry Gilliam thing makes me think that Catherine Hellman may have run in some more avant-garde circles that Flea would have been party to. Maybe we should try to put them together one day. And like a... Do you want to write, like, a fan fiction? About no, I meant, like, a, where... like a blind date. Well, Catherine Hellman's dead. <laughs> oh. I don't know. But I guess I guess that doesn't stop true love. Oh, right? we, we could just pick, like, a random dugong and play voice clips from old <laughs> we, Catherine Hellman movies. We could, we could trick Flea. <laughs> we could tr- tr- put, a, put, a du- put a dugong in a wig. All right. <laughs> so Catherine Hellman <laughs> and Robert Cole play Warren and Lois, uh, Deborah's parents. Um, they're, they're fancy, you know, they come in, they immediately compliment the Peruvian art that Deborah has, um, you know, very astutely bought, uh, that morning so that there would be something for her mother to compliment in their, you know, otherwise shitty house. And, um, the next note I have is going to Vietnam. So you, why don't you help me out there? 
Yeah, so they're they're all they're like squares too because um with the Peruvian sculpture, uh uh Lois says Machu Picchu and Warren says Gazuntai. So that must be like their idea of humor, which clearly contrasts with Frank Barone and you know, just I he thinks racism is funny. Yeah, fat jokes, gay jokes, you know, the <laughs> yeah, Exactly. We don't get so, too many of those from the uh Warren and Lois set. Exactly. So um Ray's parents come in, and so um, they exchange greetings. And so Marie gives uh, Lois a box. She says, it's the finest milk chocolate. <laughs> and there's a little look she gives because Frank had made a comment making fun of her earlier about how she prefers dark chocolate. So the Barones are sticking it to Deborah's parents. And yeah, they, they come off. in, like, ready to troll Warren and Lois. They're not here just to, like, do their due diligence and get out. They're like, they came with tricks. <laughs> they did. One other thing I want to mention real quick is, so Frank asks, uh, uh, so where have you gone on vacation lately? Oh, yeah. Maui? <laughs> his his <laughs> delivery like... is actually pretty good with the hands. Yeah, well, I didn't know why he was doing that hand thing. <laughs> It was funny though. It got, it got a it got a rise out of me. Yeah, as if going to Hawaii is the most like you know un- outlandish, unthinkable act. <laughs> yeah. So then I'm not saying uh, it isn't expensive and hard to do, but like it's a it's a pretty cliche <laughs> vacation spot. It's a weird thing to taunt somebody for. Yeah, um, and they're like, no, actually, we're uh, going to Vietnam. Vietnam, and so this Frank is da- disgusted. His his face darkens as if he is remembering some terrible trauma in his past he says vietnam he says what do you owe charlie some payback <laughs> uh, so do you are do warren and lois get this joke <laughs> it still wasn't clear i don't know because they're they're t- i guess war- they were too old for warren to be drafted into vietnam but i feel like everybody of the time knew that Charlie is a, an offensive term for the Vietnamese people. Yeah, but it seems to go right through them. Like, you know, Vietnam is a country with nice beaches. What what are you possibly referring to? Um, it raises an interesting question of who is more ignorant of the events of world's history. Is it Frank <laughs> who has this uh, rather childish conception of the U.S.'s conflict with Vietnam? Or Warren and Lois who... Uh, seem to do their best to forget about the historical right. Who would vacation there guilt free? Yeah. Would not think about the uh, the politics of an American vacationing in a land that America um, besieged. Yeah, it just shows on this show nobody is nobody is pardonable for that. Oh no, sins. Phil Rosenthal is an equal opportunity offender. He gets everybody. Phil is he's like a bull in a china shop. There's, <laughs> nobody is spared. <laughs> Thought you were gonna. Never mind. Bull in a Vietnamese shop. <laughs> Bull in a Charlie shop. Oh my god. Um. So you know, they they quickly realize the subject is too political, and they talk instead about um recent trips to the theater. Um, yes. Lois and Warren and Lois have uh are raving about uh, a new show that they saw called Stomp. Yeah, Frank is quite incredulous. He first asks how much they pay to get into it. Forty bucks. Forty bucks, which he recoils at, and when he learns what the nature of Stomp is, which I I don't know, I kind of share a bit of his uh, skep, uh Well, that no, you're onto a thing here, though, right? Because whose side are we supposed to be on? Are we supposed it, to be 
are we supposed to be in the middle with Ray? Like, like they both have their they're both absurd in their two the two extremes, or like is one of them a sounder position to hold than the other? So, do you think this is a weakness of Phil's writing where there isn't there isn't somebody's point of view I'm cleaving to at this point because they presented uh, Ray's parents as they have this mocking attitude towards Deborah's parents, and you're going in thinking like, yeah, these people are like kind of hoity-toity and condescending, so I'm eager to see them be made fun of. But Deborah's yeah. parents seem to be genuinely polite and seem to actually uh, sincerely want to have a nice interaction. Well, I noticed too, like it did seem almost like sloppy writing sometimes and that like they they do usually get around to flaunting their, their, their culturedness and stuff, but they generally like ask Frank and Marie first, like, oh, what have you been doing recently? Have you done anything interesting, seen anything interesting? And when Frank and Marie um, are like – they seem patently incapable of answering such a question, like making any sort of small talk at all that isn't passive-aggressive and loaded with ulterior motives, then they are, like, forced to talk about themselves. But, like, it, it seems like it would be much easier to laugh at them if they came in with a desire to show off. They, they seem to do that as a reflex when nothing else is being discussed. Right, ex- exactly. That Their motivation is not to rub into the Barones that they're you know, these cosmopolites and world travelers or anything else. It's just the Barones are so not well, not uncultured, but you know what I'm getting at. Well, I, I do. The, the Barones either taunt them, like Maui, on yeah. you know, payback for Charlie, or the Barones are like, have this like stunted idea of what socialization is that like they can't speak. They talk to each other in the presence of Warren and Lois instead of responding to the questions that Warren and Lois are answering, asking. Yeah, and and there's no – the episode is not focused enough on Ray or Deborah's motivations that I'm really embarrassed for either of them in no. the moment. This I mean, is, Ray so, had his little pants jig, but that, that's, that's not enough for me to grab on. I need a little more. It, it's a uh, – and by this point, when I realized we were at the mid-episode commercial break, um, I was like, wow, this one is doesn't quite know what it's doing. How are we possibly going to get a story out of the next 12 minutes of TV? And then we don't. <laughs> and that's where we'll take our first break. Yes. All right, so when we come back from the commercial break um, – we are at uh, the restaurant. Do you remember the name of the place? I forgot to write it down. Uh, Le Bardino. That doesn't sound right. Barnadou? Barnadou. It sounds like, like a made-up French word. It's not... Uh, I, I, I tried to check it while the episode was playing, and I ended up just forgetting it because it didn't lead me anywhere. But they're at a French restaurant, a fancy fresh re- French restaurant, and they are... A four-star restaurant, as Deborah mm, exclaims. Mm. That's a four-star restaurant. In a gesture of goodwill, Ray has agreed to take both families out to dinner. Um, Well, Warren and Lois are going to pay for it, um, which is where some of the the source of the conflict comes from. But they arrive, and immediately in the lobby, uh, speaking with the maitre d', there are issues. Yeah, so um, uh, Frank waves him off because he doesn't want to have to tip him. 
Maurice says, <laughs> "Yeah, oh well, don't skip over the fact that this that the first spoken line of the scene is oh, it's a good solid holy crap." But then then what you were saying, Frank uh, refuses to let the Mater D seat him. Yeah, he waves him off with his jacket with the elbow pads on it. And the reason being, he doesn't want to tip him. Right. If he lets the Mater D seat him, he'll have to tip him so he can seat himself. Um, as they're walking over to the table, Robert stops Raymond. They they pull back, um, and Robert seems concerned. And this is the saving grace of the episode. I thought Robert was great in this one. He he did his part pretty well. The biggest laugh I had uh, comes up in a couple minutes, and we'll talk about it. But I yeah, think, he, I'm I'm hoping it's the same one for me because I do have a starred line. But yeah, so Robert is uh, wants to know if this is one of those places with dressed up waiters, because, <laughs> yeah. uh, which I thought was funny. Um, that he there's a couple funny lines I thought here that like Robert gets intimidated when the waiter is dressed better than he is, and like you know talks down to him and and controls the interaction. And Ray's like you know you're a police sergeant, you outrank him. Big you know big studio laugh. And how, I thought it was how so, will he know? Right, that was a good line. Yeah, it wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. So, so Robert is is here to do damage control for the episode, and they eventually get to the table. His, Robert sits Robert's down. physical comedy when he gets up there too, talking to Deborah's parents because he keeps doing like, "Hey, how you doing? Hey." <laughs> and and he, like, uh, a lot of awkward. He's seated points. at the head of the table uh, as if he's. Uh, I think the camera just realized we, we're going to need Robert's face more than anyone else's here. We're going to need that Sensor. pissing the pool face. He doesn't. I don't think he pissed the pool face in this one, dude. No, right? no, he's actually he's kind of he comes out like the best in this episode, which, yeah. which hasn't happened so far. Well, I think it just speaks to how shitty everything else around him is. Like he he rises to the top, but so um, this is when France comes up as a subject, as you alluded to earlier. Um, you know, Frank and Marie don't seem to understand what type of cuisine is served at the French restaurant that they went to, and Warren is like, you know, French, naturally. They don't seem to understand, like, the concept of a restaurant. Oh my god, it was, it was so implausible. They, they seem, like, bewildered, like, they were, like, caged animals that were, like, you know, set loose all of a sudden in the, in the wilderness. Yeah, it, it, it really stretched, I, I couldn't suspend my disbelief for how they behaved at all. Especially, like, I just, aren't there, weren't there enough references at this point in time to, like, I'm thinking of the episode, two two episodes ago, when Frank and Marie, like, have their spat, that, like, you know, Marie wants to be treated, well, in the parlance of the show, not that I'm saying this from my perspective, but at, like, you know, like a woman, like a lady, that Deborah tells Frank he needs to, like, do things for her, like, take her out to restaurants, like, it, it seems like Marie and her character would want to fit in at a place like this. Yeah, it it was a bit of a shift for Marie. Marie seems much more loyal to Frank as like a lifestyle now. Like she she likes being Frank Barone's wife. She likes being the wife yeah. of this kind of traditional boorish guy where there was such conflict in the last couple episodes. Right. To me, this just did not sit right, that Marie should be putting on airs. If anything, the comedy should have came from the fact that Marie you know, doesn't truly know what to do and what to say, like mispronounce some French words, order something weird by accident. But, like, she should not be, dis- like, so repulsed by the idea of eating at a fancy restaurant. It's so yeah. out of character. Yeah, you're right. It's, it's way too much of a character shift, and it completely takes the viewer out of the episode if you're, you know, watching with any closeness. Yeah, well, it, be- it became hard to watch this scene because it was just so chaotic and poorly done. 
Um, but so anyways, you know, they have to be told that the French restaurant they're at is going to be serving French food, uh, to which, uh, Frank says, I don't appreciate the French, <laughs> French. as a, as a people. <laughs> yeah. So it, is that the, um, that's only the second nationality he's insulted this episode, right? You're counting the Amish? Oh, you mean oh, this, ep- this episode? This episode. Because I know there is a third. I think it comes later because I have it in my notes. Uh, Wait, so are you that. are you talking about the, the Vietnamese? Who, who are we? So, yeah, he calls, he calls the Vietnamese Charlie. Yeah. So he says he doesn't appreciate the French. And then the people. Um, when the waiter comes around and is bringing around, like, the little baguettes. Oh, yes. I about I, oh, I blocked this out. I blocked this out entirely. <laughs> With the rhyme. So... Not to go back to the Nazi thing. No, but, uh, you could have you could have easily avoided. <laughs> I know. I didn't know. I had to bring it up. But yeah, so uh, so the waiters bring around the, the baguettes, and Frank asks if they have rye bread, and the uh, the waiter says no. He goes, "What do you do if Jewish people come in?" <laughs> <laughs> it's so like. Like, like, design, like, because th- there's, like, a whole bread scene to get to this joke. Like, they really, it's, it's similar to the candy from the beginning of the episode. Clearly, mm. there was a bit they wanted to do um, where Frank ordered rye bread and then made this, like, insensitive comment about Jewish customers. And they they knew it was just, it didn't fit right. You could tell. It, it doesn't sit in the rest of the scene. So they, they go through this elaborate bread parade of nobody at the Nobody of the Barones understands how to take a piece of bread from a, brand, a basket. Like, they've never been offered bread. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, that's what I'm saying. It's 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 as if they've never been to a restaurant that isn't Nemo's before. But there's been no, indications no, 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 no. in previous because episodes. Because at Nemo's, they give you bread. That, yeah, Angelina does uh, bring over bread. It's true. Right. It's so a even, direct contradiction. So, yeah, the, in the canon of the show, they should know how to accept bread from a waiter at a restaurant. Right, it's it's just bizarre. So the there's this whole you know routine of of Robert can't take bread from the waiter because he's being condescended to and challenged. Then Marie won't take the bread because the there's too many plates and too much silverware and she doesn't know what they do. Again, way out of character. She should be like, I just I just you just you know people like Marie who are like, you know they want to show you that they know how to use all the silverware properly. Like you know it, it doesn't fit. And then this yeah. ramps up to Frank um, wondering how the restaurant can possibly accommodate Jewish people without rye bread. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Although I, I do want to rewind just a bit, um, a couple of Robert lines. So yeah. oh, I hope it's the one I have. <laughs> yeah, so Deborah's, Deborah's parents uh, address him as Officer Robert. And yeah. they're, ac- they're actually like very like gregarious and magnanimous. They like Robert. And they, they like Ray too. They think Ray is like a real cut up. It's yeah. kind of like um like Carmela's father on The Sopranos. Like remember right. how he likes Tony? It kind of reminded me of that a bit. But so they they ask Officer Robert how police work is, and uh, I don't have the full line. I just, my note just says fishing a skull out of a toilet. <laughs> He's, he says something like one day, one day you're doing you know something banal and like you know, traffic cop type stuff, and then the next day you're fishing a skull out of the toilet <laughs> at a homicide. <laughs> and then his good evening when the Mater D comes over, too. Yeah. That was that, funny. That was so, it, what, it wasn't actually the line that I had, though. Well, oh, what was my uh, My favorite line was, uh, one, you know, once things really take off and Frank and Marie are at, like, 
a point of absolute idiocy where they don't seem to be like functioning humans anymore. Uh, Robert, you know, is feeling it, and he's like, "Is anyone else hot and cold?" <laughs> oh yeah, that was good too. Oh, that was a good line. Um, but we're we're like alighting. We're alighting the several. You know, the first of of more than one reference to transvestites. Um, oh yeah, that comes from Ray. That comes so. If this episode was done the right way, I really could have felt a lot of sympathy for Ray because he's being pulled right. in like five different directions this episode. He's in a tough spot. Because there's loyalty to his family who raised him, but he realizes they're kind of embarrassing. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he if he values his marriage to Deborah and this is something important to her, he wants to placate his in-laws. And he seems to like his in-laws, even though he finds some things distasteful about them. Well, he says he says as much. I guess they convince his parents. Like, hey, I do like them. I do like yeah. them. You know, there's that scene. And then, yeah. Yeah, Ray's situation is very identifiable, and it's able to, it's uh, very easy to be able to feel sympathy toward it, but Mm -hmm. it's just the episode itself doesn't take proper advantage of that. So I don't, I don't feel Ray's conflict as well as I should have, I thought. But the the stress of having to balance all these responsibilities, uh, it it seems like it finally breaks Ray, and he goes on this, he goes on this rant about the differences between well, it's actually, it's, I guess it is, um, the catalyst of it is a remark that's made by uh, Deborah's father, Warren, who says, well, not everybody can understand everything. And it's it's the first time that Deborah's parents have actually, like, displayed the condescension that has been uh, only alluded to to this point. Which, at this point, is completely justifiable. Oh, yeah, because they're, they're totally behaving so boorishly and, and, and embarrassingly the barones yeah definitely and, and especially as deborah's parents guests i the barones are uh, completely in the wrong in this well yeah thing. the 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 thing that really gets them there is when frank and marie start analyzing the prices and trying to save them money and frank is telling warren that you know this place is picking his pocket and he's an idiot if he doesn't see that basically yeah like and it's it's funny too because it, it kind of reminded me of there was an earlier episode when Marie talked about uh, Frank, pardon me, buying what, what was it? Oysters from the, a derelict's uh, car, yeah. <laughs> something like that. So Frank is uh, susceptible to being ripped off, so he has no place to talk. No, but, See, I, I just had all sorts of problems with this scene. I'll let you finish your point, but the, yes. It, so Ray, Ray breaks down, and he goes on this rant about how it's it's silly that they even got together. And he keeps using the word idea, and he he pronounces idea in this very, like, New York City accent way, which I thought yeah. restored some of his uh, uh, outer borough bona fides a little bit as well. Well, that's, that's where you get to see that, like, the intention was to have him turn into his, you know, turn into a barone. But, oh, yeah. Well, they, they say it in the follow-up scene, but still, it was like, yeah, he... There's so many problems with this scene. I can't even talk coherently about it. <laughs> yeah, it's bad. This was a rough episode to get through. There's not that much material to work with. But yeah, uh, so to the transvestite thing, he talks about, he says, my, my parents, they like to stay home and watch TV, and your parents, they like to go to a theater in Cambodia and watch a transvestite carve a yam into a monkey. <laughs> That, that's it, right. I forgot. There <laughs> yes. was all that, um, you know, 
uh, Orientalism involved as well. <laughs> yes, Ray has not read Edward uh, side. So the the problems I had here, I'm going to try to lay them out cogently, but I'm not sure it's possible. Lay them so, out. It doesn't. It seems like somebody had decided beforehand, and when I say somebody, I mean Phil Rosenthal because he wrote the episode. He that Ray would have to have an outburst where he misspeaks and he, and he like betrays his Barone roots. But like like you identified, the Deborah's parents are not doing their thing right. They're behaving politely. They're looking for ways to salvage the dinner constantly, and only at the very, very end does Warren say something that could possibly con- be construed as insulting in this in the most subtle, indirect way. And right. this like crosses Ray to snap. Whereas, like a much more logical and probably funnier scene, you know, it never should have come to a head like that where it all blows up. Because then you, first of all, you leave, you leave that problem at the end where there's no resolution. The episode does not get resolved. But, like, watching Frank and Marie struggle through the dinner is is just the, – it's better comedy than having them fail to even get – like, fail to even achieve dinner. <laughs> you know, like, they, they didn't reach dinner. The whole thing blows up. And it's like they had to act so unbelievably idiotic to break the scene to give Ray this speech that was like – Ends up coming off, you know, in retrospect, it, you know, extremely offensive and provincial. But yeah. like, it was just, it was just a poorly, poorly, poorly conceived scene. Um, and I, did, I had one question for you though. Yes. So, you know, Phil Rosenthal is not Italian; he's he's Jewish. Right. Um, do you th- do you think that he wrote the joke as if Frank was his own father, right? Thinking of himself as Ray, as Ray as his avatar, that he writes this like rye bread joke. You know, either remembering some similar incident where his father's asking for rye bread at a fancy restaurant, or like you know, drawing from his own you know cultural background, and then only incidentally does it become racist and anti-Semitic, <laughs> uh, and because he's so careless with the scene, you know, he allows for that. Or did he think this would be a funny thing for Frank, the Italian patriarch, to say? That's an excellent question, and. Uh... When we get Steely Ray on, he could probably. Oh, you're gonna defer it. to Steely Ray? Not not compl- the buck. Not completely. I'm just I'm just um I'm just listing a caveat to my answer. All right, here. all right. I'll, I'll give you a real answer. I I think more the former, because okay. from what I've read about Phil Rosenthal, what we both read uh, through Steely Ray, what anyone's read, Phil Rosenthal. Like, so everybody has stories about their life. Everybody has to order their life experiences in some everybody way. Everybody loves Raymond. Every, everybody loves Raymond. But everybody everybody has to make sense of the things that happen to them in some sort of narrative way in their life that makes it identifiable to them. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to impose every story that happens to you on other people. You don't privilege your own <laughs> narrative experience as, like, the ultimate experience. And everybody's met people, though, where they think everything that's happened to them is the most interesting thing that has happened. Everything is the most funny thing. Nobody's life has ever been like theirs. And while that's maybe true in, like, uh, you know... Or, more, though, or it's, like, more like he's, like, he thinks of himself as the universal, right? As the everyman. Which, I mean, which is a form of, like, narcissism mm-hmm. in its, in for its sure, own for sure. way. So I think, I think Phil really does get off 
in this way that his he's seeing his life reflected back to him. And he thinks it's like everybody enjoys this. My life, my life is so crazy. My parents are so crazy that everybody would have to like this. And just so he's just totally like unaware of the fact that like your parents were Jewish and this scene would have played very differently in that case. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting that his, you know, his self-absorption, maybe you could call it. I don't know. I'm, I'm I'm throwing a lot of shade, as the kids say, at Phil here. On that, on that, um, what are the odds that he's listening to the podcast? <laughs> Two weeks ago, I would have said zero. <laughs> now I say almost a hundred percent. So, do you think that we need to temper this? Listen, I I want to provoke Phil out of his hole. Phil has a standing invitation to come here. Whenever he wants. And I was going to say that if himself. Phil sent us like a, a t-shirt or like a signed copy of his book, we would just take all of this back and become totally praising. That, that too. <laughs> Send us shirts, Phil. And they don't even be Raymond shirts. They can be your whatever stupid food shows you do. No, just send us like, you know, some uh, primary colors pullover fleeces <laughs> yes, from the Raymond wardrobe. <laughs> Send me, send me some uh, Melanie Hughes makeup. <laughs> the, the Melanie Hughes collection. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, unfortunately, this is where the fucking scene ends. There's nothing comes of this. Ray's We're back. Up and, like, yeah, so I think Deborah looks at him and the scene fades out. Yeah, so the next we see anybody, we're back at uh, Frank and Marie's. Robert's there and Ray is there because, and as he says, Ray chose their side. Right, and and this is like to add insult to injury on a bad episode. The way that Frank and Marie are behaving now, uh, yes, I understand this is supposed to be the joke. But how would you describe this turn in their attitude? Nonsensical. They they are now saying that Ray ruined the evening with his blow up. That they were you know looking forward to a nice time and were looking forward to being treated to a nice dinner. Yeah, and it's. Even in the context of this episode, it's a complete reversal because they had nothing but disdain for the restaurant they were going to and for Warren and Lois as people. They totally disqualified the possibility that it was going to be an enjoyable evening at all. And, and, that, and like that's the – I get that that's the joke, that they get home and they're completely different people and that Ray has to deal with the fact that his parents are contradictory people. But – the intensity of the previous scene just, I think, precludes this. Like, if it had been, like, an uncomfortable, strange, awkward dinner that Ray kind of messed up at the end, then you can pull this. But not one where he literally, like, stands up and shouts his in-laws down and possibly destroys the family. Yeah, and and in the context of the show and what we've been presented, particularly about Marie, Marie has been presented as, like, this manipulator who's constantly trying to win, win Ray's loyalty back to some point where it was before he was married to Deborah, where he was yes. still one of the Barones and of the family. And it seems she has achieved this in this episode. Ray has taken a stand with the Barones against Deborah's family. He's gone back to the house with them and she scolds him instead of accepting it. I feel like it's, in previous been... episodes, she would have, cooked him something or whatever right well that's the thing is like i get this joke it it is a tropey joke the like why won't you do this why won't you do this why won't you do this oh why'd you do that you know like i get i get the structure of that joke but 
Yes, it, it it violates the previous seven episodes of Marie, who would have been very self-satisfied, would have cooked him up, you know, some dinner to make up for having to deal with that disgusting French food. You know, like, the whole thing. Yeah. Um, it, it's just, like, a, it was a truly, and I, I know this is, like, a, a ridiculous word to throw around, a truly Kafka-esque moment <laughs> where, like, you know, this this person is told, like, all you have to do to succeed in this, you know, uh conflict is is do this and he does it and then he's greeted with like well what you should have interpreted from that was that any you know any true truly successful person would have known never to do that and that he was being played and so by doing what we asked you to do you have actually damned yourself it's that and i feel like it it um illustrates phil rosenthal's ultimate weakness as a writer and a creator of a show because i hear that phil yeah, Phil, I'm calling you out. Come on. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> because this is probably something that happened to Phil Rosenthal in his life. Or at least he perceived it that way, that he went out to dinner with his parents. And so he probably thought, oh, this was such a funny thing that happened to me. I got to put this in the show. And he has no regard for what they've established in the previous episodes. It's just he wants to shoehorn it in because he thinks... Yes. It's such a funny situation, but it completely flies in the face of what they've established already. Yes, and I, I think there's there's definitely more to dig into here, but we'll leave that for, for next episode when we have the Phil expert on. Yes. Um, and possibly even Phil. Who knows if he'll respond to this. Um, the the final scene, right? And this is – I think – I thought this was even weirder because there's no, um, like, stinger on this episode. There's just, like, a last scene that rolls into the credits. Um, <laughs> for, you know, Ray goes home. Deborah's waiting up for him in bed. Um, she's pretty upset with him. Um, and she says, like, you know, what I, what was upsetting to me was that you uh, started to really look like your parents. And, you know, that's totally correct. And there's really no way out for Ray. Like I said, she should probably be divorcing him at this point. Or at least, you know, that's extreme. But he should be sleeping downstairs tonight, right? Yeah, I mean, they've, they've both slept on the couch for a much, Far less. Yes. <laughs> much lesser transgressions. I thought this scene was this is like right in your wheelhouse though. The the <laughs> the, the, the Deborah <laughs> loving just like her school marmy persona towards Raymond's. I'll, right, so I'll, so, I'll 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 let you take it away. This is all But you. when I again I thought there was also like like the way that the that the writers wriggle out of this one is not typical Deborah either. She sees she says, oh, you know, like, it doesn't really matter that you stood up at the table and, you know, like, insulted my parents to their face at a fancy restaurant that they frequent um, because I also felt a little bad that I resembled my pretentious parents. Um, and I don't like that about myself. <laughs> and then they make up and there's a sex joke. Yeah, Ray's typical adolescent attitude towards sex. Yeah, see, I don't think this would fit the, like um, – the like the typical Ray Debra dialectic. I just I don't know, like Debra's stance toward. First of all, that that nightgown she was wearing, it she was she was more sexualized than she's been. She was, yeah. But also, was it like? No, you're right though. Like now that now that you pointed out, maybe I was maybe I missed the fact that having Ray, like Ray, is in one of the worst positions he's been in on the show. So of course she is like ready for sex. Yeah, so she's she's getting some thrill once again out of her her boy being disobedient towards her. Well, to be honest, I was 
kind of fixated on the fact that Ray called it a makeup sex. Yes, he did. He used uh, an indefinite article. Yeah, that like so we just made up, and that means we'll have a makeup sex. And I I couldn't get over that to be honest. Maybe he was like, um, maybe because he's so Italian, that's just how he says it. It's just <laughs> it like was a like tick. a Mario line. A makeup sex. <laughs> <laughs> And then so he once again becomes the barone he is. <laughs> yeah. I'll make up sex. I'll make up sex. Um, and then the end the episode just fucking ends right there. Yeah, this one this one sucked. It was a bad episode. And I'm, you know, I hope that our, you know, I keep, you know, pretending nobody listens to us. The stats say otherwise. We got some listeners. And uh, I hope you are satisfied with uh, this, this recap. I think we did all we could. I've been warned that the the following episode is even worse, though. That that's the notes I have actually. You got a warning from from whom? Steely Ray. Oh, Steely! Oh, Steely Ray's ahead of us then. Yeah. So he told me that the last the next episode is garbage, and he watched this one too. So it's got to be pretty bad. The thing I'm I going into this, I didn't expect any of them to be good. That's true. We, I don't know what we're expecting. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know. I, maybe my uh, disgust is not warranted. But I feel yeah, like we so, did all we. I feel like we did all we could with this one. I mean, you you mentioned Franz Kafka. I don't know how many times I mentioned Nazis. I mean, how, how much we more did a can lot. We, do? we did a lot. Well, that's that's what people can expect when the episodes are subpar. Yeah. Um, there's two last things I want to I want to cover. And you know, right. we're doing one episode. We acknowledge it was terrible. We're way over our time. Yeah, um, like an hour twenty. <laughs> so so here's here's the two things I want to bring up. First of all, um, there. We thought we were the only uh, Everybody Loves Raymond podcast on the market. Uh, yeah. There is another. There is an, uh, a show out there. I know you're listening. Called Talking Ray and Everybody Loves Raymond podcast. Uh, they did five episodes in 2017 and then abruptly stopped. It, then they came back um, when Ray Romano was in the big sick. They did like a special episode to talk about that. I haven't oh. listened to that one yet, but I want those guys to know I have listened to your podcast. And I've got some notes for you, so I'm going to get into some of those right now. Um, oh. Listen, we're, you know, like, you know, like there's, uh, you know, like people call, like, the Dirtbag Left, whatever. Uh, we're the Dirtbag Ray podcast, and we will talk shit about other Ray podcasts, so that's, people got to be ready for that. We're Frank Barone, and they're Warren and Lois. Exactly. We don't care. Like, right. I'll do the hand motion and say Maui right in their face. <laughs> so, um... I'm not going to get into the whole thing. They seem to be like a husband and wife duo. They seem to generally, genuinely enjoy the show. Um, and like I said, I don't want to pick apart their relationship. I hate um, them already. <laughs> a couple quotes uh, uh, rubbed me the wrong way, though. First, um, the, the, the host of the show at one point says, Ray is the ultimate man. <laughs> End quote. What do you make of that? Ray. Ray I... It depends on what your conception of a man is. Ray well, has when, Ray has no qualities two. of like a a masculine traditional man. When Ray when Ray recognizes that when Deborah says things are fine, it actually means they're bad. He's like, yeah, Ray's the ultimate man. Th- that's his criterion. I don't know. That was all he gave me. Uh, <laughs> the second quote I care about is that when Ray makes. Um, I think it was a fat joke. Uh, they can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, 
the show seemed to be bothered by it, and the quote is, uh, that's not something Ray would say. <laughs> maybe, yeah? Maybe On episode big, two? Maybe, maybe the big fans of, like, Ray's stand-up. It's possible. I think they really the love up. Ray Romano. Yeah. They, have, they have this image of Ray. They don't like when Ray has to, uh, you know, descend to the gutter to get his kicks. Right. So the, similarly, they're upset with, uh, you know, they, they seem to have watched the show either in syndication or when it was on before they started recapping it. And they were upset at or, or confused at how uh, dark Robert's character is in the early ones. <laughs> hey, that that's legitimate. Robert is portrayed as like a Boo Radley-esque figure. <laughs> Sorry, so I could agree with him on that. There's um, there's two things that I just couldn't abide, though. The other ones, you know, they were curiosities. But first of all, they they seem to have wanted, and I, I, I commend them for this, they seem to have wanted to really live the Raymond experience by taking a trip to Bear Mountain together. Bear like Mountain's the, nice. Well, well, listen, get get this. They say that plan failed because Bear Mountain doesn't exist. What? That's what they say. They say, like, sorry to our friend who, you know, told us otherwise, but it turns out Bear Mountain isn't real. Do we know where they live, these people? I didn't get a sense of that. They ended up going to Vermont instead uh, because Ray and Deborah do that at some point later. What, what were their um, accents like? Were they, like, Midwest people or New York? I, it seemed very like a very clean accent. I didn't hear like any kind of indicators, but I I don't know. I, if I had to put them somewhere, I'd put them like Ohio, ah, uh, Pennsylvania, but not like Philly or Pittsburgh, where place with like a strong accent. It was a very it was just a very neutral. No accent. wooder. I didn't hear anything along those lines. I was listening for it after they said Bear Mountain doesn't exist. They <laughs> also, and this is one. It's not their fault. This is not something I'm calling them out on. They. Maybe maybe even in a way that also betrays that they're not from, like, the New York area. Did not know what hot and sour soup was. Well, from, like, um... I don't even think I know what that is. Where... Okay, then I'll ask you a different question. Where would you order hot and sour soup? A Chinese restaurant. Right, at least you know that, right? You know yeah. it's a, a dish at a Chinese restaurant. They they didn't know. They thought Ray made it up as a nickname for Deborah. <laughs> Are you laughing at them? I am. So, talking Ray, if you want to come on as guests, this is the this is the treatment you will get. We will laugh in your face, uh, and we challenge you uh, to talk Ray with us. Yeah, come on, talking Ray. They already they also misused the word husbandry to refer to uh, just being a husband. When honestly, I think that has to do with like animal insemination. Yeah, it's about, it's about like breeding horses and domestic animals. I just wanted Which... to fire like one parting shot at them. That's honestly an apt uh, metaphor for the show, though. Um, so I said I had two things at the end here. I, I have three. <laughs> Here's two more. All right, keep going. Um, if you think I should save one of the, I'll, you know what? I'll do one last one. I'll save the next one for you, next time. Use your discretion. I trust you. We're at an obscene amount of time for one episode of recap. Um, okay, so I was a little personally, uh, I, I was disappointed in myself last week when our guest John was on, and he had ben John. Uh, asked. <laughs> Benjamin, um, he had asked me, you know, like, oh, you're learning Japanese. Did you know what was said in the stinger of the previous, the last episode that takes place in Japan? You remember this? Yes, yes. All right, so I went back and I watched it more closely. And while I still have to defer to the fact that the woman speaking has a regional accent, she's not speaking like 
textbook Tokyo Japanese. All right, but I I got most of it, and it, she says, "Nikibu wa dekite kuru, takusan no ichi no musuko, Roy." What do you uh, What do you want to get some payback with Charlie? <laughs> no, what she says is that acne exploded all over the first son's face. <laughs> <laughs> Something along those lines. Nikki via's ac- acne that it, it came and there was a lot of it on his first son. <laughs> well, I, I know that was a big source of controversy, so I'm, I'm glad you cleared it up. It was another one of my corrections. It just took me a long time to get to it. And uh, all I'll say is a lead into our next episode. So I, I appreciate everyone for listening so, so long. Yeah, thank um, you. You got any last thoughts you want to throw in? I, I've been um, I've been brainstorming a rating system for the episodes, but I, I might wait for that. You want to debut it next time? The next episode, yeah. Okay, and then we'll have some great news because uh, both Ray Romano and Brad Garrett, who stars as Robert, uh, will be on Celebrity Family Feud at the end of the month. More on that next time. Yeah, big big development. All right, um, that's it for me. Yeah, I guess that's it for. Me as well, so it for both of us. The two of us have no more uh, to say. That's it. All right. <laughs> that was fucking long.